Hi, church. It is, we are here again, uh, but it's getting closer. I feel like I say that every time we get together. I feel like I say it three or four times a day, but the renovation is getting closer to being complete. Uh, everybody, this is my first time I've done anything this big or been involved in anything this big, and everybody tells me that's just construction for you. Um, but, uh, but really, everything's looking great. Uh, man, the restrooms, the sanctuary, I mean, we're just blown away. We think you're going to really love um, what the construction team has put together for you and and the construction company has been great to work with and God is just blessing us in that way and uh, so there's a lot to be excited about and uh, we really are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel uh, we can't wait to be all together again in our home um, with these what we called tools right these are we are sharpening our Trinity tools to make more faithful followers um, more facilities for people family restroom uh, for perhaps single parents or or folks in a wheelchair you know those types of things are sharpening our tools to help make faithful followers to be hospitable and so we're just excited about all that stuff um, if you have, un have been unable to meet with us at South Broadway, we want to make sure you know um, we are having a Trinity Summer Fellowship at the Boers and the Kimseys. They live their neighbors. And so uh, we're going to be meeting there this Sunday, June 13th at 5.30 p.m. There's going to be food and fellowship and fun. Um, it's going to be a great time. We would love to see you there. If you're the type of person who wants to bring something or can bring something, um, they're asking uh, to provide um, a side dish or a dessert and bring your lawn chair if you have one but if you can't swing that if you can't bring anything that's okay we're just glad that you're there we would love to see you again this Sunday at 530 if you need the address uh, and you don't have it uh, you don't have a bulletin um, why don't you call the church office or get a hold of me if you have my information call me text me text Darren Bob Mark Nancy all those folks get a hold of them ask them for their address we would love to see you there uh, it'll be great to be um, all together and fellowshipping. Have a great time. Um, we love you. We're glad that we can stay connected at least this way. And I can't wait till we get face to face again. Um, let's pray. We are going to be in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Big number 12, little number 13. Let's pray over our time together. Father, your word is precious. Father, our flesh and the world tends to argue with your word, uh, desires to argue with your word. Uh, but Father, we pray that you till the soil of our heart that we can hear what needs, we need to hear. Speak through me, um, your words, not mine. If there's anything from me, Father, make it completely apparent. Um, we want to hear from you. So Father, may we take this passage and may we dissect it, may we poke it and prod it, may we turn it and to be able to, to drink deeply be able to see clearly what you would have for your people in your word. Father, we love you. Thank you for all you're doing with our church family. And Father, please continue to bless us. Please bring us together again at our home base very soon. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. Um, do you have a dime on you? You have a dime. You know a dime. Little, little tiny thing, silver in color. Um, almost insignificant. Seems like it, it's something I don't, I don't hardly carry cash anymore. We all have 
we all have debit cards, credit cards. You can even, I saw a guy today at the coffee shop, you can even have it on your phone now, right? If you have Apple Pay, boop, you touch it with something and there you go. So I don't use a dime anymore. Um, the dime to me is very insignificant. Uh, I can't buy anything with it alone. I don't carry it around with me. Um, I don't use them. I don't really use them. Don't see them very often. So it seems like an afterthought. But I tell you, um, there was a coin 2,000 years ago, uh, very much like our dime. Had a face on one side, something on the other, had some writing. Um, maybe if you held two in the ha your hand, a dime in this hand and uh, Tiberius Denarius in the other, you would not know the difference. Uh, but I tell you, this coin 2,000 years ago, very much like a dime, this coin caused much bloodshed. This little coin, the Tiberius Denarius, caused more trouble than perhaps anything else in the ancient world for God's people. This little coin seems so insignificant. But this coin, to kind of put it in our day, uh, this coin is, if we took Republicans and Democrats, MAGA, red MAGA hats, vaccines, masks, Capitol riots, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, all these things, we took all these political things that have been happening in the last year, year and a half that we've been going through, we took all of them and compressed them down into this little bitty space. We put all that stuff in that little bitty space. That would be not even scratching the surface of all the political uprising and upset and, and turmoil that is represented by that little coin. The Tiberius Denarius. And this Tiberius Denarius was the money, was the coin, that Rome used to collect, ta collect taxes from their conquered nations. And so, as you can imagine, that little coin for the conquered nations symbolized humiliation, oppression, um, death of loved ones. All, kind, all, all kinds of political fervor was wrapped up in that little coin for Israel. Every Israelite man must use this Tiberius Denarius to pay Rome for the privilege of having their army oppress them. They paid so that Rome could conquer and control and oppress all over the Roman Empire, including Israel. Can you imagine what that feels like? It probably feels a little bit like if the Nazis had won World War II, invaded America, and we had to pay them for the privilege of upkeep on their machine guns. Isn't that crazy? How would you feel about that? Some of those feel, how, what, would you, what would be going through your heart? Anger and bitterness and wrath and hopelessness, all that stuff. And that was symbolized in this little coin. But we're different. America is different than Israel. There was also a religious fervor that was connected to this coin. The coin, get, get a load of this. The coin had Emperor Tiberius' head on one side with this inscription. Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. You know what that says? On one of the coins, on one side of the coin, it says, Tiberius is the son of God. And the Roman imperial cult said that Augustus, that Augustus Caesar was a god, and Tiberius Caesar was a god. How would you feel about using that? 
the reverse side, had Tiberius seated on a throne with this inscription, Highest Priest. So, how would you feel about using a coin that claimed someone other than Jesus was the Son of God? That claimed Caesar Augustus was God. And on the other side, claimed someone else other than Jesus is the highest priest. Tasked with making us right with the divine. How would you feel about that? When you held the, a denarius in your hands, you held the Roman imperial cult in your hands. It's part of why when Paul defines salvation, and he, he defines it this way, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not some magic words. When Paul says that this is what it means to be saved, confessing Jesus is Lord, he is saying you are confessing Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. You're confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, not Tiberius Caesar. You're confessing God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is the only divine, divinity. It's the only being that is divine, not Caesar Augustus. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. And so you combine these, this, this political fervor with this religious fervor, and you have an amalgamation of the most intense hatred for Rome and the Romans. It's, it can be symbolized, all, all that tension can be symbolized in this little coin, and will spill over, will spill over in, in 70 AD when the Roman army will lay siege to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem has rebelled against everything that coin symbolized, and they will destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. So this led to all kinds of questions for Israel as God's people in the land, the land of milk and honey, the land that God has promised them. What does it mean for an oppressor to come? I mean, there's all these questions. And one of the questions, one of the practical questions is, should we pay taxes? What should a God follower do? with this Tiberius Denarius. And that leads to questions for us. What is the role of government in the life of a Jesus follower? Now, we do not face questions as difficult and as intense as theirs. There's nothing, there's no army that's laying siege to Pittsburgh because we don't pay our taxes. There's, you know, they, they were so intense, but, it, but what, if what is true for them in that intense situation is surely true for us and even the difficult political climate we find ourselves. I hope that makes sense. I hope that's clear. So let's read. Let's read about this Tiberius Denarius. Let's read about this political and religious situation in Israel. Mark, big number 12, little number 13, goes like this. And they sent to him, Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true. Really? And do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They really believe that. 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This conversation most likely took place in the temple. We've seen Jesus enter the temple. We've seen him come, the triumphal entry. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus coming as king, sitting on a donkey, prophesied in the Old Testament. We see Jesus come, inspect the temple, overturn the temple, say, He has abolished the temple. He is the new temple. We've seen the Sanhedrin. You remember these guys? 71 high priests, uh, scribes, all these guys, the, the creme de la creme, the leaders, the, the government of Israel, come and inspect Jesus. Say, whose authority, uh, who, by whose authority do you do this? And Jesus tells them a parable and calls them the murderers of God's Son, prophesying that He is going to be murdered for the good of the people. To, to save God's people from their sins. And so the Sanhedrin is, is trying their best to destroy this guy. And so what they have done, the Sanhedrin has got together Pharisees and Herodians, guys who do not get along, and brought them together and said, hey, we're going to trap this Jesus guy. He's got all this crowd around him. And so what we want you to do, we want you to go and, and you know, make him feel good and, and blow some smoke and, and, and say these things and try to catch him off guard and then hit him with the big question. Ask him if we should pay taxes. Because here's what's going to happen. Put him in, in this trap. Either Jesus is going to say, don't pay taxes, and the Romans are going to come and arrest him. They don't play games with those type of guys. There have been rebellions over this tax. So go. He's going to say, no, Romans going to get him, and he's done. Or he's going to say, yes, pay taxes, and the crowd who loves their homeland, who hates the Romans, they're going to leave him because they're thinking he's soft or wimpy or scared or I don't know going to lose their support. So either way we win. This is what they're thinking. So they go and they flatter Jesus with things that are actually true, but they're saying, you know, they don't believe him. And Jesus is exacerbated. Oh, why are you testing me? Why do you do this? He says, bring me the coin. They bring it to him. I could see him holding it up like this. Whose face is on this coin? Tiberius Caesar. Whose inscription is on this coin? Tiberius Caesar. Who owns this coin? It was understood that these coins literally belonged to Caesar. They were his personal wealth. Whose coin is this? It was Caesar's. So give Caesar what is Caesar's. Give God what is God's. They marveled at him. Jesus is brilliant, isn't he? I mean, just a master of the human psyche, of the human condition, a master of crowds, knows exactly what to say. I mean, just what a, what a man. And so what we see here, and what, what we can take from this, are a few things. And what, I, what strikes me is Jesus did not come to fit neatly into any political party or political mindset, or certainly not a rebellion. 
you got to realize, who's, who's listening? Who, who's in this crowd? Who's in this crowd? You have the Pharisees. We know the Pharisees. We see, we've seen them a lot. Uh, we, we read about them all over the New Testament, all, uh, especially in the Gospels. We read all about them. They are super nationalistic. Super nationalistic. That means they love Israel. They would sacrifice everything to make Israel as powerful as possible. And they're also super religious. We see them make sure they, they count their steps on the Sabbath to make sure they don't work too hard on the Sabbath. We see that they won't spit in the dirt on the Sabbath because if they spit in the dirt, somebody might walk by and be tempted to make mud, to make brick out of that mud and then they would be working. And, I mean, these are super religious people. They felt, Pharisees felt humiliated at having to pay this tax. Humiliated. However, they realized if they did not pay it, Rome will snuff them out. And so they paid it through gritted teeth. Fine. There you go. And their unlikely dance partner in this scene are the Herodians. They, Pharisees and Herodians do not come together for anything other than their hatred of Jesus. See, Herodians loved to prop up the Roman puppet king, Herod. We've seen Herod. Herod is the, the man who, who cut off John the Baptist's head. We've, we know all about Herod. And so these Herodians are Jews who have propped up and who love to prop up their phony puppet king. The Romans put Herod in place and they love propping him up. They're working with Rome. Try to squeeze as much power and influence out of Rome to be Rome's puppet. To be Rome's dogs. And so they were all about paying the tax. We want to get on Rome's good side. Let's pay that tax. And so, you can imagine, these, these two did not get along other than wanting to come together to get Jesus. And those are not the only political parties, not the only groups that are represented here. We have zealots. You've heard that term. Someone who's zealous or is a zealot is somebody whose whole being is put into some religion or some enterprise. I am zealous for this. I am a zealot. I, will take, I won't take no for an answer. I'm going this direction. Those are zealots. So you can imagine what they thought. If the Pharisees are nationalistic, these guys are above and beyond. They're the guys who spark the powder keg for rebellions. These are the guys who love taking up swords against Rome. And you know what's interesting? Jesus made a disciple from the zealots. Simon the Zealot follows Jesus. Zealots hate paying the taxes. And you know what? They hate it so much they won't pay the tax. So you have this group, too, even represented in the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, in his inner twelve. Not only that, you have tax collectors. Matthew, the tax collector. Disciple of Jesus. Despised by his countrymen. Why? Because he collected this tax and taxes like it. Men like him were betraying their own people by supporting Rome, by collecting this tax. 
Isn't that amazing? So in this, this first of all, in the, in the 12 disciples, you have this group, a zealot and a tax collector who surely hate each other, who can bring these people together? Only Jesus. So what we see is we have all these groups, and you have people in the crowd that probably fall in all kinds of different areas of the spectrum, but everybody has an intense opinion about this. And Jesus shows up, and he does not fit neatly into any of these categories. Because Jesus is not interested in joining a political party. He is interested in bringing his kingdom, his kingdom alone. In fact, we can see Jesus's, Jesus has a great political stump speech already. Their mockery of Jesus is true of him. They're trying to mock him with things that are true. Listen to this political stump speech. Why does he need a political party? Listen to his stump speech. Jesus, you always are true. You always teach what is true. That's true. Jesus never lies. Would you like to vote for a politician like that? Never lies. Jesus always knows what to do and when to do it. Jesus knows what his enemies are thinking. What a politician he could be. Jesus, they say, you don't care about opinions. What a great politician that would be. Someone who knows the truth without a shadow of a doubt and has nothing to prove, needs no donors, is never insecure, and is not here to secure votes for the next election. He's just here to get God's will accomplished, to bring the kingdom of God. I'd vote for that guy. They say, Jesus, you are not swayed by appearances. How wonderful would it be to have a politician who is bringing total and perfect justice for all who doesn't pander to the wealthy and the elite, who values every human being equally and works for the good of all human beings. And they say this, you truly teach the way of God. Jesus brings us the way to a righteousness and to righteousness in this life and salvation in the next. Is there anything more important than that? No. And so, Jesus does not fit neatly into a political party. Political parties are always going to be filled with sinners like me. And so we can never think that a political party has it all together. Jesus will never fit perfectly into any political party. And so we should not feel surprised when we do not feel like we fit neatly into any political party. Are you with me? So, since He is our King, and since we have talked about how good He is, we should always feel let down by earthly politics. Because there's no politician that comes close to being like Jesus. We should be comfortable feeling politically homeless. We should feel comfortable feeling like outsiders. Because that's who we are. We should feel that every earthly institution cannot hold up our hopes 
Our hope rests in King Jesus alone. And so, and so, now we ask ourselves, so Jesus comes and, and He doesn't fit neatly into any of this, these political spectrums and, and we see Him as the, the King of kings and, and they try to mock Him with these things, but they set Him up as, man, He is the, the King of kings, Lord of lords. He is far better than any leader, any political party, any king, any emperor, any president. He is the one. We see that. And He comes and, and so how are we to follow Him? when it comes to things like taxes, when it comes to things like the government? How are we to follow Jesus as we navigate life as outsiders in, on the earth? As American citizens and good American citizens, but also understanding that our citizenship is first in heaven. How do we navigate that? He says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Render to God what is God's. So render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Well, first, this brings, this brings up a question. If I'm going to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, wait a minute, doesn't God own everything? Is Jesus saying, God owns 99.5% of things, and then Caesar owns 0.5% of things, and God just lets Caesar have this, and he doesn't call, claim any of that. Is that, how, is that what Jesus is saying? No, of course not. Of course not. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. And so, even Caesar's throne belongs to God. The Roman Empire belongs to God. Every single Tiberius coin belongs to God. Every one of them. In fact, Tiberius Caesar sits on his throne because God allows it. Romans 13, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So it's not even like the throne that Caesar sits on is really Caesar's, it's really God's. And in fact, God owns the throne and he owns Caesar. Listen to this, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So Caesar himself belongs to God. And so when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, he's not saying that Caesar has this tremendous power that God cannot touch. No. God places those in authority over us. He makes them temporary objects of our obedience and uses them for His divine purposes. What are His divine purposes? The glory of His name and the good of His people. So, Jesus is, is in no way detracting from the sovereignty of God by saying Caesar has ownership over that coin. In no way. Everything that God does, including putting Caesar on the throne, works for the glory of His name and the good of His people. Every time a president is elected, 
God allows it for the glory of His name and the good of His people. There's a trillion reasons why God allowed Trump to win in 2016. And there's a trillion reasons why God allowed Biden to win in 2020. A trillion reasons. And all of them are connected to His glory and the good of His people. And you know, sometimes we're going to look at this and say, man, how does that work out? We might not see this until we get to heaven. We might not see this tomorrow. We might not see this in the next election. But we know that it is true. It is what God has promised. There's trillions of reasons for why God does what He does on the earth. All of them connected to His glory and the good of His people. And so, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And everything that is Caesar's is ultimately God's. And so what we are giving is not really giving to Caesar. We're giving to Caesar, but we're really giving to God because all is God's. God owns it all. We're dealing in God's property, not Caesar's. And so what are Christians commanded to give Caesar? Well, the very least what this passage shows us is we are commanded to give Caesar his taxes. Pay our taxes. Every once in a while, I run into a Christian who claims that they don't pay taxes because they think the government is too evil, too far gone, that they're just, they don't pay taxes. Once or twice, I've run into people like that. Jesus says, we pay taxes. There's been no government that we've been under that is as wicked or evil as the pagan claimants to be God that are on the throne of Rome. And Jesus says, pay your taxes. Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Paul will echo this in Romans 13, 7. He says this, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Now, a natural question is, well, pastor, what if my taxes are used for evil? It seems clear from this passage and others that God does not hold Christians responsible for the evil that the government might do with our taxes. It seems clear. Think about it. Jesus says... Use this coin to pay taxes. The same coin that calls someone else the Son of God. That calls someone else the highest priest. The taxes would support the imperial cult, the worship of the emperor as God. This coin that I pay in taxes would be used to build temples to pagan gods. This coin that Jesus commands us to pay would pay the army to commit atrocities and to subjugate Israel. This coin that they would use to pay their taxes, Jesus commands us to pay these taxes, and Jesus knows that those coins are going to be used to buy the wood that would make up the cross he will die on. And so... Again, it seems clear that God doesn't count what evil the government does with your tax money 
against you. We pay our taxes. What else do we owe Caesar? We owe Caesar, we owe our government, we owe our president our respect. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Scripture tells us, Jesus, tells, Jesus is talking about taxes, but other, other places in the Word of God, we see what else we owe Caesar. We owe our government, we owe our president. We owe our president our respect. 1 Peter chapter 2, 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Paul, again, will tell us in Romans 13, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect, respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. This is a tempting command for Christians to break. Because it is so easy to get on Facebook and to be dishonoring to the president. We saw it when Trump was in office. We saw it when Biden was in office. We've seen it all throughout American history. We've seen it in graffiti around ancient Rome that mocks the emperor. We see it everywhere. It is a, it is a desire of the human heart to mock those in power, especially when we disagree with them. Trump was owed our respect. Biden is owed our respect. Now, what if, they, what if they do terrible things? What if they're terrible people? Well, they hold an office that God has given them. God has given them the office of the presidency for his glory and for our good. And so they are a tool of our God for his glory and for our good. Somehow, everything they do is not going to be good. But God will resurrect everything they do for His glory and our good, even bad things that they do. It reminds me of a scene in the miniseries Brand of Brothers, which is about the 101st Airborne. and um, They have uh, two officers. One officer starts out uh, at a higher rank than the other officer. And somewhere along the line, those ranks switch. And he is now ahead and gets the job and is now in charge of, in command of the company that, that the first officer wanted. And, and they see each other later in the war. And the officer who felt slighted who felt like the other officer got his rightful promotion, walks by and doesn't salute. And Captain Winters, who, who, takes, who is now in his position, looks at him and says, Captain Sobel, we salute the rank, not the man. Meaning, we hold the army in such high regard as so important that it is not the man, the man might be a scumbag, but we salute the rank because we respect what it means. We respect the army. So, every president, even the emperor, even the president, even every king and queen, they've been made in the image of God. Every authority over us are people made in the image of God. So they, they are due some respect because they're made in the image of God. And then when God places them in authority over us, they are, they are, they, we, we owe them a special honor and respect. Now, it doesn't mean that we follow them blindly. We're going to hit this in a minute, but we, they are owed our respect. That's what the Bible says. So we must be careful how we speak 
about these people. We must be careful how we type about these people. There are ways to address them and disagree with them and still honor them and respect them. What else do we owe Caesar? We owe Caesar our genuine prayer on his behalf. 1 Timothy 2 says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior. Praying for these people intercessing for these people, having prayers of thanksgiving for all people, for the kings and all people in high positions. That's a hard thing to do as well. We have a hard time praying for our enemies, praying for those who slight us, praying for those we are upset with. Much less somebody who's high and removed and we hear the media trashing them and, and we hear other people trashing them. And it's hard for us to want to pray for them. But we're commanded to. We're commanded to. We're not commanded to pray like the, like the pastor who's in the news under Barack Obama, this, this pastor who had this famous quotation. He says, God hates Barack Obama, the preacher told his congregation. I hate Barack Obama. You're going to tell me that I'm supposed to pray for the socialist devil? Nope. I'm not going to pray for his good. I'm going to pray that he dies and goes to hell. When I go to bed tonight, that's how I'm going to pray. End of quotation. That is an attitude of someone who does not understand what we have been commanded to do. We've been commanded to pray for Biden's good, to pray for Trump's good, to pray for Obama's good. Good health and blessings, success in making our nation strong. We pray for wisdom to abandon paths that will lead us down sinful it would lead us in sinful ways. That's praying for their good. It's not the good of a president to lead us in a way that's opposed to the things of God. Pray for his good. Pray for the blessing that comes from leading a people in the way that God would have them go. We could pray for people that we disagree with wholeheartedly. We can pray for people that rub us completely the wrong way. We can pray for people that God will reveal to them the wisdom that they're missing. They're owed our respect. They're owed our taxes. They're owed our prayers. And they're owed our submission. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Wow. Anytime we talk about submission, that rubs us the wrong way. Especially as modern American Christians who are so free and value the blessing of freedom. When we hear the word submission, I mean, I remember when I preached, I preached this uh, several years ago at a different church. I remember preaching and speaking on submission. When I said that word, I remember an audible gasp 
in the congregation. Somebody went, <gasps> The Bible talks about submitting all the time. We are to submit to one another. Wives are called to submit their husbands as to the Lord. Husbands are called to lay down their lives for their wives. We are called to submit to the leaders of our church. We are called to submit to our parents. We are called to submit to the authorities. Romans 13, 5, Therefore, one must be in, subju in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. 1 Peter 2, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to the governors as, set, as sent by him. So what does this mean? What does this mean? The long answer is this. Christian submission is knowing God places all those who are in authority. Romans 13, 1. And to resist them where we can obey is to resist God. That's where Paul says, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. We obey those in authority over us. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. 1 Peter 2. For the glory, we do this for the glory of God. Be subject for the Lord's sake. That's a long answer. Short answer. What is Christian submission? Obeying God by obeying the authorities. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. Scripture lays out very clearly what we are to give to Caesar, what we are to give the authorities. Now, that's hard for us. Many of us will hear that, and we'll have a, we have a rebellious spirit in our heart that's been generated and fed by the media and Facebook and just human nature. We have a rebellious streak in us. That, that's me. Maybe, that, maybe you feel that way. And we need to submit that to God by saying, God, you are in control. You're in control. This government is not running amok like they own the place. They might think they do, but you are in control. So where I can obey them, I will obey them. Where I can give them my taxes, I will give them my taxes. Where I can pray for them, I will pray for them. Where I can, um, where I can honor them, I will honor them. All those things are true. But now, are we doormats? Do we just roll over and cower before Caesar? Give him everything he wants. Always smile. Always be happy. Is that, is that what Jesus is calling us to? Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar. But give to God the things that are God. What is he saying? He's making it very clear. Caesar is not God. Those inscriptions on the coin are wrong. There is one Son of God. There is one God Most High. There is one High Priest, and that's Jesus. Caesar is not God. We give to God what belongs exclusively to God. He has given Caesar some things, but he doesn't share what belongs exclusively to him. What are some of these things that belong exclusively to God? Praise and worship. We should not worship the president. We should not worship our country. We should not worship one another. We should not worship our bosses. We worship God alone. When Caesar demands worship, we disobey. 
We see this in Scripture. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You will worship the king. No, we won't. We worship God alone, and they were thrown in the fiery furnace. What do we give God and God alone? Our prayers. Daniel commanded not to pray to the God Most High. He prayed to God Most High and was thrown in the lion's den. We do not obey when we are commanded to pray to anything else, anyone else, or not at all. We do not obey. We do not give Caesar total obedience. We see this in the apostles. The apostles were taken before the Sanhedrin. And when the Sanhedrin interrogated them, they said, We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings and are determined to make us responsible for this man Jesus' blood. But Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than man. The government tells us we are to stop making faithful followers of Jesus. We disobey. We disobey. And we only give, we only put our hope in God. Caesar does not deserve our hope. Presidents do not deserve our hope. Kingdoms do not deserve our hope. God alone deserves our hope. Now I know, Psalm 20, that the Lord saves His anointed. He answered him from his holy heaven with saving power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Presidents don't deserve our ultimate trust and our hope. Our hope is in God. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing not to make it look like and sound like our hope is in earthly realms or earthly people or earthly presidents. We need to make a clear statement that we support this man, but our hope is in God and God alone. We may not support this man, but we obey, we obey where we can obey and we pray for him and we honor him. But we don't support what he's doing. And we can say that. But we say it in such a way to know that the other guy is not where our hope is. Our hope is in Jesus alone. We submit, we do not cower. We submit, but not blindly. We submit, but we don't turn our brains off. We submit, but we don't shut our mouths. We speak for the unborn, for the orphan, for the children, for the widows, for the immigrants, for the veterans. We speak for these things. We speak towards justice. We speak out against evil. We can speak out and work towards the good and work against the evil things that are coming from the government while also obeying where we can, praying when, when we can. Always pray, always showing respect. We can disagree and show respect and show honor in a spirit that desires to be submissive and not rebellious. We submit because we fear God, not the emperor. When we submit to someone we disagree with, we show the, that the world is not our home, not our highest kingdom. I can submit to this Caesar because he is only a tool for the true king. When we refuse to give Caesar what belongs exclusively to God, 
we are declaring there is only one God and we do not cower to anyone because we are the children of the one true God who can do all things. And so we need to ask ourselves, in this political climate especially, what are we showing the world? Are we showing the world that this world is not our home? Are we showing the world that we have ultimate trust in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Are we showing the world that while we have a spirit that is not rebellious but is submissive where we can and show honor and respect and prayers? Are we showing the world that we can do these things for someone we disagree with because we ultimately have a King of Kings who is using that president for his glory and our good? Are we showing that we will stand up and refuse to disobey our God, even when compelled. All these things reveal that Christ is on His throne, that He is the Son of God, that He alone is divine, that He is our highest priest and the one who we can place our trust. Let's pray for our government. Let's respect our government. Let's honor our government. Let's submit to our government where we can. And let us not cower when they ask us to do things that are counter to what our God says. We love you. We love you. Hope you're blessed in our time together. We'll see you again very soon.